genuine faith are so pronounced in James, we have to be sure that people don't assume James is advocating for salvation by works. Be doers of the word, be slow to anger, quick to listen, take care of widows and orphans, watch your tongue, don't treat one another poorly. James is so practical, his commands are so obvious, even non-Christians would advocate for some of this. They see value in some of these commands. Don't favor the rich over the poor. The sermon last week, being a person of integrity, uh, Joseph walked us through, letting your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to be a Christian to value that. And then we come to this last section of James where you really have to be a Christian to get this. And it, even for some Christians, it can be scary. It almost feels like some kind of Jedi training or something. Like, what is he talking about? James wants us to do a very practical thing, pray, but expects us to see and reminds us that we can See powerful and supernatural results from doing this very simple thing called praying. So, beginning in James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its Father, thank you for your word. Help us to see and believe once again in who you are and what you desire for us, what you want for us. Open our minds and hearts. I pray for those who might be here who don't know you as Father, who don't know Jesus as Savior and friend, that today would be the day of their salvation. For all of us, I ask that the gospel and the word of God just drive deeper into our soul and produce fruit fruits of repentance and fruits of obedience so that Christ may be seen, Jesus may be seen in how we live. Do all these things for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. James walks us through several kinds of praying in these verses, and he begins with the prayer of the individual in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. And we see that an individual prays and praises in all of life. It's a great summation of all of life. We're usually either in a place of suffering, things are hard, or we're cheerful. And for a lot of us, we might even say it's like moment by moment, depending on where your heart and your mind is, what you're dwelling on. Like we all know and we see enough suffering or we experience enough difficulty in our life that we could live in this spirit of sorrow and lament and and sadness all the time because of all that's going on around us or maybe what's going on in our life right now or what's going on in the lives of those the people that we love and while we're thinking about that we can also see the obvious goodness and grace of God at work in our lives and the lives of those around us and it cheers us up yay it's not hopeless God is still at work and we could just kind of bounce back and forth around that constantly not even day to day but within the day and James gives us clear instructions about our, what our response should be. If we're suffering or in sorrow, pray. And if cheerful, 
praise. When life is hard, run to the Lord and ask for his help. When life is good, run to the Lord and sing his praises. He is with you and can help in the hard, and he is the source of all good gifts which come from our Father above. And is worthy of our praises because ultimately all the good in our life flows from him. This is in essence the bare minimum of what we want to see in our DNA groups. Men with men, women with women, meeting weekly on a, on a regular basis, gathering and asking those two questions. What good can we praise him for? Because sometimes we get so bogged down in the hard that we lose sight of his grace. But it's always there, no matter what we're facing. And where are we struggling and where do we need prayer? Because when life is hard, it's often hard for us to respond in prayer. We just want to turn inward and find comfort in our sadness. Or maybe we just want to be distracted and just stream our way through life, not thinking about the hardness. And the beauty of DNA is that we have these brothers and sisters that we share this with who remind us and encourage us in all things we run to the Lord. In prayer or praise, it's a life that is infused with a God-mindedness. Our minds and our hearts are in constant need to turn to Him. This is the beauty of what we try to do when we gather on Sundays. We're using songs and scripture and prayers and sermons and liturgies to turn our minds and hearts to Him once again. Because we're so prone to just see the good as maybe something that we've created, something that we've done, we've manufactured. Or we see the good as just good fortune. God just isn't involved. Things just have kind of worked out in our favor. Or we see the bad as evidence that it doesn't really ca- he doesn't really care about me. And we stand on the authority of Scripture and say, no, brother and sister. Every good gift you receive flows from your Father above and is ordained by him as a gift of his grace that he wants you to turn back to praise to him. And nothing can ever separate you from his love. Not any amount of suffering, no amount of sorrow, no amount of sadness. In whatever way life seems hard and dark, run to him for help. Verse 13, uh, just another great example of one verse in the Bible that we could consume our entire lives with. Just trying to obey this one verse. Just living it out consistently as genuine prayer and as genuine praise. But James doesn't stop there. It's even better. Secondly, the sick are prayed for by the elders to be healed. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is where we begin to squirm in our seats, maybe, depending on how you might have grown up in church or your previous church experiences. Growing up Southern Baptist. This is one of those passages you kind of pretended wasn't in the Bible, or maybe with zero explanation, it just doesn't apply anymore. You don't really pay attention to it. Or it's just what those crazy people on religious TV do. What to whatever degree this makes you uncomfortable, we've got to deal with this passage. Why we love preaching through books of the Bible, you've got to deal with passages that might make you uncomfortable. To see what the Spirit of Christ is telling us through James. Now, interestingly, reading one pastor's perspective on this passage this week, uh, Dr. Daniel uh, Doriani uh, got his undergrad and MDiv through Yale Divinity School. Then got his PhD through Westminster Theological Seminary. He's a vice president Covenant Theological Seminary. He also pastored for 15 years. Excellent pastor and scholar. He said the first time he read through and studied this passage in depth, he had a friend 
in the church where he was serving as a lay elder at the time who had a viral infection of the heart, symptoms that mimicked a heart attack, but it wasn't a heart attack, but his friend just looked gray and lifeless. And he told his friend about James 5, and he said, would you like the elders of the church to come and pray over you according to James 5? Two weeks later, his friend said, yes. Daniel responded, no one in our church had ever done this before, so we did something very Presbyterian. We studied the matter, matter another six weeks and hoped he didn't die in the meantime. He goes on with the story. At last, we appointed a night for prayer, and the elders gathered. Our church's pastor, he was a, a college professor at the time, summoned the elders. Before we prayed, he told us not to expect a dramatic physical healing since God heals in many ways. I, Daniel, appreciated his motive, but there was no need to restrain my enthusiasm. My doubting heart was already skeptical enough. My friend knelt down in the middle of the circle of elders. We anointed him with oil, laid hands on him, and began to pray. Since I had started the process, I was appointed to offer the closing prayer. As soon as we began to pray, I had an overwhelming sense that God was at that moment healing my friend. My arms felt what I could only describe as bolts of fire pulsing through them. As I grasped my friend's shoulder, heat and energy burned in my hand. I felt that my one hand could lift all of his 230 pounds to the ceiling or push him through the floor if I wished. I knew God was healing him, and I wanted to shout, we must stop praying that God will heal John and start praising God that he has healed him. But I was too astonished. I was too unsure of my sensations to say a word to anyone that night. For four days, I kept the experience to myself. Four days later, after church, my friend beckoned to me with a wild grin. Dan, watch this. And at once, he dashed up a flight of stairs. I dashed up after him, met him at the top, smiling at each other. I'm not even breathing hard. I know. And I told him what I had felt a few nights earlier, and he told me I knew it too. Dr. Daniel Doriani goes on. He says, since that day, I've joined with elders to lay hands on the sick and pray for them. I have never again felt the fire. And while I occasionally feel a flood of warmth and emotion, I have learned that my feelings and God's healing may have no connection. A small number have experienced immediate healing from serious illness. More have recovered gradually and under the care of physicians. Many have found spiritual healing, great peace and spiritual renewal in times of crisis and suffering, whether they recovered physically or not. And some have apparently gained no physical or spiritual benefit at all. Those stories are incredibly common. I've, I come across them all the time. I came across them this week studying this passage. I had to pick and choose which one I wanted to share because they kind of fall all, follow all the same pattern. God do, can do these amazing things and has these amazing things through people who are solid theologically, who really get the gospel and understand the character and nature of God. And it surprises them, but God doesn't always do that. And it's a mystery about why and how and when and why. Sometimes God has shown up and done those things, but not always, which opens the door to all kinds of questions. And why does God heal in some situations and not all situations? And how does that affect how we pray in faith? What we see in this passage is clearly someone who is so sick, the elders have to come to them and pray over them as they seemingly lay unable to do much physically. They anoint with oil, which was used back then for medicinal purposes. The Good Samaritan used wine and oil when he took care of the man who was beaten by robbers and left him for dead in the street. The oil would massage and soothe some of the wounds. The wine would act like an antiseptic to cleanse some of the wounds. But if oil was just medicinal in this passage, why call the elders? If you have a headache and you take ibuprofen, 
You don't need to call the elders to come pray over your headache. You just thank God for the good grace of ibuprofen. That takes away headaches. Unless it doesn't, then you might want to call the elders to come pray over you for your headache. It seems like here the oil is more symbolic as we also see commonly throughout Scripture as setting someone apart, consecrated, someone in whom and through God was at work. It was symbolic of the presence of God. And then verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise him up. His sins will be forgiven. What these verses and this verse is not saying, because the rest of the Bible would contradict this, this prayer of faith isn't some kind of magical formula that can be recited or chanted that will guarantee a healing. This is not setting up what has become common in some circles of the church, faith healing crusades and large arena events. Those have all been discredited as money-making shams. But it also doesn't mean God doesn't and can't still heal. I could share dozens of stories just like the one I read. The prayer of faith is simply believing in who you are coming to ask for help and healing. It doesn't even mean I have to pray with a thousand percent confidence and zero doubt for God to heal because I know God will heal in that situation. If I doubt even one percent, then it must not be a prayer of faith and God didn't heal and it must be my fault, which just creates this system of shaming people. And it makes the healing hinge on us when clearly in this passage, it's God who heals at his discretion and by his will for his glory. Earlier in the book of James, it talks about uh, believing with confidence and not doubting or you'd be tossed around like a, a, a boat in the waves. And well, that, that's uh, proof that I must pray with that kind of confidence and not have any doubts at all. But that's some of that passage is talking about it's, it's not doubting who you're praying to, but we don't know if God will heal in this situation. We don't know the timing of God's power being released on behalf of that person. We know who he is. We know what he can do. We know what he's able to do, what even he desires to do, because one day there will be no sickness. What we don't know is how and when God decides to heal. So our faith is not in when God chooses to do this. Our faith is in God. He's able to do this. So that's the prayer of faith. It's not saying certain words a certain way like a magical formula. It can be what some have called a prayer of rest. Lord, I don't even know what I should be asking for. I just ask that you would take care of it and you do what's best. It's his decision. It's his design. It's God who will heal and raise him up and restore him. Our prayer is more like Jesus in the garden who prayed, if possible, let this cup pass from me but not my will be done, your will be done. If possible, heal my brother, heal my sister, heal my child, heal my friend. But ultimately, I trust you, Father. Lots of confidence in that, that the fact you're able to do that. So in one sense, we can have great confidence when we pray for people to be healed because of passages like John 14, where Jesus told the disciples, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me would also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's not just a blank check to get whatever we want. I mean, would you even want that kind of unlimited power? To have God's omnipotent power at your disposal to use as you decide? Like, that's kind of terrifying to think about. I, I, don't, I don't know everything God knows. I don't see everything God sees. I'd be terrified if I could just 
uh, just make happen whatever I want to make happen. The context of Jesus saying that is that he's about to leave and he's sending the Spirit. And in and through the Spirit, we can do and expect to do greater works than Jesus did. Not his atoning sacrificial work that only he could do on the cross, but we, the body of Christ, would declare his gospel in more places to more people. And we as well can expect to see this gospel proclamation accompanied in power. And sometimes it's power for people to repent and turn from sin and be delivered from sinful oppression. And sometimes it's power to show up in signs and wonders like healings and miracles. Do we really believe that? Are you like, that's just a little too scary for me? Has it been so abused so much it just makes us too nervous to deal with? Or maybe we're just too intellectual for that. We would prefer to keep God in a place where he's safe and predictable. Interestingly, if you go through the Gospels, you never see Jesus praying for people to be healed. You just see Jesus commanding, commanding sickness to be gone, demons to be gone. But you don't see the apostles or the rest of the New Testament advocating for us to command sickness or demons. Because we're not Jesus. You do see them advocating for us to pray for sickness and believe God can heal, but not always does God heal. Some of Paul's companions, like Epaphroditus, whom Paul himself prayed for, wasn't healed. Paul had to leave him behind because he was sick. You would think if anyone could make it happen when they wanted it to happen, it would be Apostle Paul. Paul says I had to leave him behind because he was too sick to travel. Paul himself wasn't healed from the thorn in the flesh. And so while in some ways we have this incredible confidence to boldly ask God to heal because he tells us to pray like this, it's, just, it's also done in humility because we don't know how God will answer a particular prayer at a particular time. God created the world with no sickness, and we know in the eternal state there will be no sickness. Death and sickness are intruders. But when God gets rid of the sickness in our lives, we don't always know. But that doesn't resign us to not pray. We do. Verse 13, if you're suffering, pray. Luke 18, we pray persistently and never lose heart. One pastor said, I would rather pray for 100 people to be healed and one person healed than to pray for none of the 100 people and none of them are healed. Another pastor said, we should pray for God to heal until either God reveals for us to stop like he did with Paul and the thorn in the flesh or until death. We pray with boldness, persistently, confidently. But we pray with humility because ultimately it doesn't hinge on us. We're not the ultimate deciding agent in prayer. So in all of this, we have this incredible dependency. We don't know. We can't reduce God and his power to a formula that we can just punch a few buttons and make happen what we want to happen. That wouldn't require faith. So we have to seek him in community through the word of God, believing that he will reveal what he wants us to know in time. God may heal physically, or he may be at work to accomplish more in us than just physical healing. I remember, and I've shared this before, when I was a hospice chaplain, visiting a 32-year-old mother with three kids whose body was ravaged with cancer, talking to her young husband. And he was convinced, convinced God was going to heal. God's going to raise her up. Even if she dies, when we go to the funeral, she will be raised up out of the casket. And so in one hand, I wanted to provide comfort to him as a young husband watching his wife pass away. 
to love him, to not just fix all of his theology or whatever, just loving him through that. But at the same time, assure him, even if she were, she's going to die one day. Physical healing in this world is not ultimate because this world is cursed with sin. This is not the ultimate healing, even if it happens miraculously. There's more at work than just that. Being physically healed now is not ultimate, so that makes us humble. But God can and still does this, and that makes us bold. So we have to walk this out by faith and not by sight. And this isn't just for the the elders to do. So thirdly, individuals pray for one another to be healed. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Elders of the church can be called upon to pray and anoint with oil, and we've done that as elders at the crossing, and we will do that. But we don't have special giftings or callings that make our prayers more effective than the prayers of non-elders. In fact, in churches that are further down the road and do this a better job of practicing this, often those pastors say that there are non-elders in the church who seem to be more effective at praying for people to be healed. Could be one of you who just begins to believe this and carry it out and do it. And so in our DNAs and our missional communities, let's be bold and confident and full of faith to ask God to heal and work and do only what he can do in our bodies and our minds and our hearts. But at the end of verse 15 and in verse 16, you also see this connection between praying for healing and confessing of sins. So, so big picture, yes, all sickness is a result of sin and creation. But that doesn't mean that there's always a direct correlation between your particular sickness and your sins. But there could be. And since it's really a good idea to live a life of confessing and repenting sin already, certainly we should do that if we're asking God to work in our bodies and minds and hearts in supernatural ways like healing. Some sins can be so severe, anger, bitterness, worry, anxiety, unforgiveness, that they can cause physiological responses in the body, psychosomatic illnesses. You're sick. You go to the doctor, one of the questions you'll be asked, how's your stress level? What do you mean? What does that matter? It matters because your body reacts physically to the stress and the weight of life that you're carrying. So confessing those sins can help our bodies heal if those kinds of things have gotten to the point of sin. We forgive. We trust the Lord. We quit living an angry life, which means I'd have to quit driving my car. All of our bodies, and our bodies will respond because it's all connected, physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental health. And there can be times it's appropriate and necessary to confess our sins to one another. This is not calling for public confessions of sins before the entire body that some churches have practiced, unless you've sinned publicly and everyone knows your sins. But confessing sins to one another, he says, which seems reserved for more private confession. I wouldn't suggest if we sinned against someone only in our head, we go and tell them, in my head, I wanted to murder you. You never knew about it. You're just making the situation worse. We don't want people running around confessing sins of lust to people they've lusted about. Don't make it worse. But it would be helpful in places like DNA groups for us to be open about, here are the sins I struggle with. It's shared in confidence. It's not going to be broadcast around. We're not going to be shamed or cast out, but we will be loved and we will be gospeled and we no longer have to hide. 
or live in fear of being found out. We can quit carrying that burden. And it could be that it leads to healing. Sometimes physical, because the sin has become so entrenched in your body that it's causing physical issues. But certainly emotional and spiritual healing can happen when we're confessing sin and repenting and being reminded of God's love for us through his son Jesus. And then lastly, fourthly, we learn from the prophet that prayer is effective. Verse 16, where he says, The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now it's common to think that this is not a good example for us. First, he says the prayers of a righteous man are very effective, powerful. Well, that doesn't feel like me. And Elijah, one of the great prophets who saw amazing miracles happen, the dead raised and fire fall from the sky and weather patterns altered, this seems to be saying, well, this kind of effective prayer is just beyond us. It's out of reach. It's for one of those rock star Christians who write books and go on speaking tours and conferences or become Christian famous. Well, first, what or rather who makes us righteous. We're not declared righteous because of our works, we know this, but the works of Jesus. This is ultimately what makes us righteous in God's eyes. And then we strive to obey, and only then do we strive to obey and do what's right. But we still do that imperfectly, and so our righteousness is always and only rooted in Jesus. Like you don't get good enough where you can just say, okay, Jesus, I got this. Look how righteous I am. No, you're still sinful. Probably more, if you're saying that, you're more sinful than you realize. I can promise. We fail at the righteous life that Jesus lived perfectly every day. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when that verse becomes our reality, Jesus died for our sins in our place. He paid the price for our sins. You either pay the price yourself or you trust Jesus to have done that for you. But then you and I not only get his forgiveness for our sins, but we get credit for the righteous life that he lived in God's eyes. So that when God sees us through the righteous lens of Jesus, he sees the righteous works of Jesus as our works. So that we're always righteous in the eyes of God through the lens of Jesus, which is really mind-blowing. Like I think we grasp the forgiveness more than we grasp the imputed righteousness. It just feels beyond too much. That's too far. That's too far. Okay, I can see you just saying, it's okay, I've forgiven you for that. But to get credit and to always be seen as righteous as Jesus in God's eyes, I, I can't understand it. We have to live with that reality, that truth undergirding everything that we do and who we are. Because that is what makes us righteous. That is who makes us righteous. And then we live the reality of being that child of God, praying with boldness because our Father loves us and loves our prayers and loves to hear us trusting Him and calling out to Him to do what only He can do. But what about Elijah? Well, he seems like an Old Testament Christian superhero, probably wore a cape, just went around doing these amazing things. Well, James, inspired by God, is using him as an example for us to learn from him because, as James says, he was a human being just like us. Yes, we read of the amazing things God did through Elijah, but we also read about Elijah struggling with despair and depression, running away and fear 
for his life. Some would even call him cowardly in that moment. Filled with self-pity and even at one point asking God, just take my life. That's how worthless I am. Second, First Kings 19, you can read all that. Yet, through this very imperfect vessel, God did supernatural work, including altering weather patterns, which is a picture of what's happening in prayer. We say words, we imperfect but righteous children of God, and God works in ways that only can be attributed to him so that he alone gets the glory. Like We have so many movies and, and shows at Christmas which speak of seemingly supernatural things like the Christmas spirit. If you still believe, you can hear the bell ring on Polar Express. If Buddy the Elf and Gimbel's employee Jovi can convince New York City to believe that Santa's sleigh will fly again. Like we love all of that. We enjoy that. We watch it. It's not real. It's not real. If we take the supernatural, sorry some of you older kids. If we take the supernatural power of God and we assign it to the same category as something like the Christmas spirit. I wish it were true. I don't really experience it, so it doesn't seem to be true. We are failing to be Bible-believing Christians. We're failing to take God at his word. If Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's all true. And the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And so this passage is really more a passage about prayer than just about healing. Pray to God when you're suffering. Praise God when you're cheerful. Ask the elders to pray for you when you're sick. Be, pray for, uh, be praying for one another to be healed as well. Confessing your sins. Pray, believe in God is alive and able to do supernatural work in our world and our lives. Like every single person in this room, I'm convinced, has a situation or multiple situations in your life that seem impossible. Like you just carry, we carry this weight every day. God, I wish that were different. I wish that were different. I wish I could fix this. For someone to be healed, for someone's heart to be changed, for a situation to get better. Are we dealing with these weights and resignation? God has done all he can do. As though God is dead. As though God is not still able or are we walking through the situations with faith in our God who is alive and able and willing and just might blow us away in his love and his power? And will certainly blow us away in his love and his power to sustain us with his grace for however long he needs to sustain us with his grace. I've been on a journey the last several years, really since we preached through 1 Corinthians, to grow beyond my understanding of these passages, my understanding in the past, and continue to ask God to just open my mind and heart to his, this active supernatural power that is still at work today. And honestly, for me, it's been more like, I believe Jesus, but help my unbelief. One of the things I've loved about this journey I've been on is the more I learn from others who are further down the road from me, the more I see my need for Jesus. Like, it's just driving me to Jesus. Because the only way you experience this is if you're intimately connected to Jesus. To be t attuned to his heart. To see the world as he sees the world. To see people as he sees people. I'm convinced we've not experienced this aspect of God's love and power. Not because he's not willing and able, but because we haven't asked. We've tried and we've quit. 
We have not, James says, because we ask not. Or we just get discouraged because it's not happening when I want or like I want. Well, what if we just took God at his word? What if we just believe this was true and this was available to us today and we began to ask? Not like this showy way, look at me, look how amazing I am, but just in a humble, confident way. God, you can do this. I'm going to persistently, passionately pray for you to work in these situations. That's the the beauty of that passage, that verse where it says, uh, the prayer of a, a righteous uh, person, or rather, verse 17, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly. Some of your verses say, some of your translations say fervently. And we think that there's like a special intensity to the prayer. But the original language in the New Testament just says he, he prayed and he prayed. It's just emphasis on praying. It wasn't like this level of praying we haven't achieved. It's just he did it. He prayed consistently. He, he just prayed earnestly, believing that God could do this. What if we opened up our minds and hearts to whatever God wanted to accomplish in us and through us for his glory? So uh, I didn't do the pastoral prayer at the beginning. Some of you really attuned people noticed that because I wanted to save it for the end. And I wanted us to, to pray through these things together. Obviously, you don't have the prayer in front of you like I do, but just just join me in your mind and your heart. And let's, let's pray for these things that James Sharp has written for us to pray through this week. He he's uses this gift to bless our church, to help us be constantly praying for a wide uh, swath of needs. And let's pray believing. But, but first, I'm going to give you just a couple moments for you just to pray on your own. Just you and God, just go to him, confessing sin, repenting of sin, trusting him as your father. And then we'll, we'll pray through these needs together.